Welcome, everybody, to episode 98, bearing down on 100 here, 98 of Utah in the Weeds. My name is Tim Pickett. I am the host. And today's episode is a two-part, the start of a two-part discussion with Clifton Uckerman. Cliff is an LCSW and now the first Latinx professor at the University of Utah. He recently uh, accepted a position there. He is part of Utah Therapeutic Health Center and has brought his entire practice and his expertise and history into canatherapy and discussing some of this uh, shame molecule. Today's episode is the beginning, like I say, of a two-part discussion. We go through some of Cliff's history. Cliff is a local Utahn, and you're going to want to hear about Cliff's history, his upbringing, uh, his experience with the cannabis plant in his family, uh, and you'll understand a little bit about his drive to make this something, to make this program something that works, to make people, uh, to help people be okay and, and really help them through their trauma. And if that includes canatherapy and cannabis-based therapy or, or help with the cannabis plant and destigmatizing that, you'll enjoy some of this conversation. Cliff's become a good friend of mine and somebody that I, I trust to take care of people. I think Utah is uh, just lucky to have somebody like him around. From a housekeeping perspective, uh, it's May. And like I said, we we're bearing down on episode 100. We've got some special things planned for May. Stay subscribed to Utah in the Weeds if you need updates for medical cannabis. Uh, go to utahmarijuana.org, and we've got we've got updates. We've got education at Discover Marijuana on YouTube, and we continue to drive people through the Uplift program, our subsidy program. If you know somebody with Medicaid or terminally ill, encourage them to apply. We have ways for them to get their evaluation and discounts at the pharmacy through that subsidy program. Lots of partners, Beehive Pharmacy. Uh, Deseret Wellness, Zion Medicinal, Wholesome, Perfect Earth, and True North joined. Uh, we hope to be adding more partners through that program this month as well. Cura Leaf is now going to be on board, and Block Pharmacy with Justice Cannabis is on board as well. We're helping people get through, and if you can't get through immediately and you need behavioral health therapy. We talked a little bit about that in this episode, but uh, utahmarijuana.org slash uplift is the place to go to find out more about that great program, something that Cliff and I are working on together. And uh, it's really, we're just trying to give back to the community there and help the people of Utah find access to cannabis when they need it. Enjoy this episode, everybody. I'm looking outside. It's a beautiful day. Uh, go outside, walk your dog, uh, get out and enjoy this beautiful weather. Do you, uh, do you drink alcohol? Sometimes. I've been drinking a little more since COVID, but uh, I've been having this kind of issue with my, my thought process around alcohol versus cannabis mm. and my kids. Mm. 
Remember when we were in the panel and Desiree got asked a question and then she said, oh, I used, I smoked weed and then, oh, my kid's in the room. Yeah. I wanted so bad to like stop everybody and say, okay, listen, that goes to show you that even us in this room, the literal people who are trying to destigmatize cannabis can't even sit up here on a panel and not worry about our own kids seeing us or knowing that we're smoking weed. That shame molecule. We still carry shame and it's embedded. Yeah. How do we, (laughs) how the, how the fuck are we going to get rid of that? My father-in-law goes to my sister-in-law's house and is yelling downstairs and the junior high kids in the kitchen and he's yelling downstairs. Hey, Brandon, what, how much of this gummy should I be taking? And his daughter just ripped him a new ass. Like she was so pissed off because Uh. he's talking about something that, and I talked to my wife about this this morning and I said, but she said, you don't, that's none of anybody's business. And I said, well, you know, I'd go in and I'd say ibuprofen and I would say, well, honey, how much of this ibuprofen should I take? Right. And that's okay. Right. But cannabis isn't like that. Right. Why is that? It's the, it, you really just, it's the shame molecule that's embedded when we're young. Yeah. I mean, it's, think about it. I mean, the war on drugs started in the 70s, maybe the 60s. So we're talking, I mean, it's 2022. So yeah. we're, we're thinking 40 plus 20, that's 60 years in the making of it being criminalized, penalized, punished, shamed. So generations. <laughs> Yeah. That is bad. And if you are associated with it, you are a bad person. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't do anything. Even when we've come so far that I literally uh, do this for a living, Mm -hmm. right? And we still have this in the back. I mean, I'll pour a drink. I've said it on the podcast. I'll pour a drink in front of my kids, no problem. Mm -hmm. But won't consume cannabis in front of my kids. Right. And... I'm, I'm just, I know it will change over time. Yeah. And I guess the answer is time is the only time. And then repeating, I mean, what do we do? Time and people that can make the change. I mean, time goes on, but it's the people in that time or within that time, like you or me that can, or anybody else that's willing to take that risk, have that courage and be open and honest and transparent and forthcoming about it. Mm, so I mean, if I, if I have asthma and I have my children or my child in front of me in the same room and I'm having an asthma attack, I'm going to take my inhaler and use my inhaler in front of them. <laughs> I'm not going to keep it secret and go into the bathroom to use my inhaler. <laughs> no, of course, of course not. And that's, but we just, we do, we do still associate with uh, cannabis with both the recreational side, the medicinal side, we're using it for both now. Hmm. Anyway, okay, well, back to back to basics. I yeah. I kind of imagine this as I mean, let me introduce Clifton Uckerman. Right? You've never been on the podcast before. Never. That's a tragedy in itself. <laughs> okay. And uh Clifton Uckerman is LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. Mm-hmm. And Congratulations, the newest uh, professor at the University of Utah in the Latin X 
position. Position. Mm. First of its kind. I'm so excited. And so this is for, for listeners out there. I mean, this is the episode. If you are not subscribed, you should, you should subscribe now and get the downloads every week because Cliff and I are going to have multiple conversations throughout the year. We'll publish. We will definitely not get through all of this today. Mm. Right. Right. I mean, you have a, you have a really fascinating story and we'll see, we'll just see where this kind of takes us. Yeah. Cool. When was the first time you uh, were exposed to cannabis? Cannabis. Can you eat, can you remember? Yeah. <laughs> Since I was born. You know, my dad was um, a pretty uh, well-known marijuana dealer back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, he had pretty rich connections. And, you know, I remember... As early as I can remember, I mean, there would be pounds and pounds in the closet. I mean, I think I asked him one time when I got older, you know, how much weed did you have in the closet? That must have been at least a couple hundred pounds sitting in the closet. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. And so, this is, you're, you're just a little kid. I'm just a baby. Yeah. Are you, was this here in Utah? Here in Utah. On the west side of Salt Lake. So, you know, like um, my dad built and owned a house, owned property in a neighborhood called Chesterfield. Are you familiar with that neighborhood? Not really. I think I've heard of it. So it was the last to be incorporated, even with curb and gutter. It was still dirt road in West Valley City, the last neighborhood to be incorporated. Chesterfield. Oh, wow. They called it Teepee Town um, because everybody, you know, before, you know, 20 years before my dad built his home, you know, a lot of people lived in teepees and my, my, um, <laughs> My play shed growing up was actually my grandparents' old chicken coop. And before it was the chicken coop, it was an actual, you know, a little piece of housing for somebody to live in. Wow. So what was it like growing up there? I mean, we can, we can talk as much about this as you want, yeah. really. And I know you've, look, you're, you're a therapist. You got into therapy. I, uh, I, I know that this is a lot of, I don't know, tell, tell us the story. Yeah. Well, have you seen the, the movie Blow with Johnny Depp? Uh, yep. That's kind of my dad's story, and I grew up in that story. Right? So he was, I mean, there's this kind of cliche, you know, 60s and 70s of the big time, you know, drug dealer, yeah. marijuana turning into cocaine, and then cocaine kind of <laughs> dismantling it all and, you know, ending in kind of you know, nothing good. And so, you know, my dad had pretty rich connections in the seventies, sold a lot of marijuana, all of his brothers and all of his children. I was the youngest. So had I been 10 years older, I would have been selling for him. When I, when I did become a teenager, I was selling at like 12 or 13 years old, but all my older brothers in that time, you know, in the seventies and all his brothers, they all had a pretty, you know, profitable, and a distribution and they yeah. were selling a lot here in the West here in the, here in Utah. Yeah. And, um, so I was born in 81 and by the time I was born, you know, uh, that's oh, when you were moving into Coke. He got, yeah, he was into cocaine. And the problem there is he got pretty addicted to it. And, you know, everybody that was selling his weed also started selling his cocaine. And then everybody that started selling his cocaine and him included kind of, you know, yeah. got hooked on it. Yeah. 
you went from a drug that was dangerous because it was illegal mm -hmm. to a drug that was just plain dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. But you can see the progression, I guess, of the, the thought process in society, mm -hmm. how everybody thinks, oh, weed's a gateway drug. Mm -hmm. Look at this story. Right. But really, that, that kind of had nothing to do with it. It was just that it was illegal and profitable. Plus, it was part of the trend. It yeah. was a societal trend. That's what was just kind of coming in and moving and mm -hmm. and moving through people's lives. And it's another, I think it's another form of medicine, um, probably m much more addictive than marijuana. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot more addictive from a medical standpoint. No and question. probably brings with it just a, a major onslaught of additional consequences. The criminalization and, and the incarceration um, and the and the legal involvement that can come with you know purchasing, selling, distributing, um, using, you know, is, is probably the most major consequence of them all. I I believe you. I'm sure there be people out there who don't think that right, but I I think that the criminalization of it just made everything. It just destroyed the whole thing. Yeah. And then you, and then you had addicts who couldn't get any help. Right. Period. Period. We just put them in prison, we and then we blame them and shame them. We shame them and punish them. Yeah. And with addiction, so I mean, the way that I look at it, in the marijuana days, I mean, of course, I wasn't really alive in the '70s, but when I look back at photos and heard stories of my family and all the outings and the crowds and community that they were involved in. I mean, that seemed like it was a really fun time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it had to be right. It, it really, because it, nobody died. Right. And it was just kind of, you know, use your medicine, come together, right. you know, have fun, live life. And then the 80s came, and I think because of the societal trend, my dad had those rich connections that he had. You know, I, I, my, my mom showed me, you know, pictures of all his connections. And we're talking big lawyers in Utah, big doctors yeah. in Utah, you know, big real estate agents in Utah that are my dad's connections. And my dad is really, you know, a, a half, you know, Filipino you know, half German mixed race, biracial kind of general contractor that just lives on the West Side. Right. So here comes the cocaine and he's just kind of following suit and these connections are, you know, just giving him more feed on what the supply and demand is and he's distributing, you know, whatever the trend is at that point in time. Yeah, but of course. He did get busted in a really big way. So I'm like four years old. I, I was having a sleepover. And then all of a sudden I see... Like you from the movies, all these you know agents all in gear, you know black sunglasses, you know guns out, and they come and you know bust in the house, and they seize everything. They go into his bedroom. They're pulling out like kilos of cocaine that he had duct taped under every drawer in his bedroom. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> and they take him to jail, and they have all of his cash wads of cash and my friends are like what the hell let's go their friend my, their parents had to come pick him up and oh yeah and then my my sister came and got me from the house but at that point in time i think that's when things really started to go downhill because he didn't get adequate treatment and he was already in an addictive process 
So the most counterintuitive thing that you can do, having worked in addiction myself as a clinician and as a provider, the most counterintuitive thing that you can do to somebody that's in or coming out of or wants to come out of an addictive process is shame them. Because really, the triangle of addiction, the recipe of disaster for the addictive process is unmourned, loss and grief, unprocessed or uh, hidden trauma. Hidden because it gets buried and nobody talks about it and, and it remains a secret. And then the internalized shame that's packed into or embedded into that trauma memory. So if you're shaming somebody that's in an addictive process or coming out of an addictive process, so counterintuitive and counterproductive, it's like throwing, you know, gas onto a fire. Yeah. So now you, you grow up and when did you start, when did you start using cannabis? So let me do a little bridge, a bridge to that. So, so he went down, didn't get adequate treatment, was shamed and criminalized and penalized. And I, I think a lot of people, if they have the support and the resources and tools, most people don't know what they don't know until they're getting busted. They go to jail, some right. bad, you know, consequence occurs. And then they realize, and then they wake up and they're like, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize now I feel guilty and ashamed. And then they just need help. Yeah. So for my dad, because I don't think he got adequate help, he just became more ashamed couldn't share more of his traumas, wasn't mourning any of the the loss and grief that was coming from this major life consequence. And so just continue to spiral down. I I think if I look back at it, looking, reflecting and looking at how I witnessed everything, I mean, I think he got, I could see him at the time I didn't realize this, but looking back at it now, I do getting more and more depressed, feeling more and more ashamed, having lost a lot because of the criminalization. Um, And really couldn't recover. And so ended up back in an addictive process until I was about 14 or 15. Ended up, because he got so heavily addicted to cocaine and crack cocaine, he injected for several years. But in his last days as a crack addict, he was inevitably eventually shot and killed in a crack house. One of the most reputable ones in Salt Lake City in 1997. Wow. So um, probably a few years before that, you know, I had found, you know, some weed <laughs> in, yeah. in his truck. I think he was still trying to do a little bit of side hustling, but he didn't have the major connections that he had had before. No, no. But my brother did, and my other brother did. And so both my brothers, and my dad was kind of going downhill and getting more entrenched in his addictive process, but my brothers were still selling a lot of weed, and and I had found some in my in my dad's truck. And I also found a little 22 millimeter handgun as well. So I'm 12 years old, you know, lacking parental guidance and supervision. Family is broken up and falling apart. Yeah. (laughs) So, so I go to school and I pack my locker with a couple ounces of weed and I'm carrying around a little 22 at 12, 13 years old in seventh grade. Oh, I didn't know about the 22. Yeah. God. Scary stuff. That's scary stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the weed alone at that time, okay, you're, you're, you're going to school in West Valley? Mm-hmm. Westlake Junior High. <laughs> Westlake Junior High. It is 1992, 94, 
about 94, 95. Yeah, yeah, 94, 95. So we are in the midst of, I mean, we're changing laws to make it harder on people so we can prosecute kids as adults. Mm-hmm. We're building three strike rules. Yeah. And and you're not white. Yes. Yeah. Let me, I mean, add that to the mix. Right. And whoever says that's not an issue is is doesn't know their anything from anything else. Right. So what is this like for you in junior high? You making money? Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you're kind of making your own money. I'm kind of making my own life based on what I yeah. saw all my elders and my, and my, my dad do. Right. Sure. And so I'm just kind of following suit. And I, I don't know what I don't know. What does a 12 year old know? I mean, <laughs> I was so young and stupid. <laughs> right. So I'm just, you know, driven by anxiety, fearful of what the future holds because I have to survive and I don't know any other way but to just do what everybody else does. So yeah, I'm making money, but I'm also a delinquent juvenile because I have no parental supervision and support. My family is broken. It's just kind of me in the world and I'm, you know, found finding family through other kids and peers my age that are coming from similar backgrounds and home lives because that's what I can relate to and identify. I don't feel like I belong with the normal kid. I feel estranged from the mainstream from kid. From the mainstream at that time. And yeah. you're you're finding camaraderie and friendship in the in the kids with similar situations, broken homes, uh and yeah. and drug use. Yep. And then it's just fun, right? It's like, oh, this is cool. You know, we get we get freedom. We get to have we get to do whatever we want. This, you know, Peter yeah. Pan and the Lost Boys. <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. So I get kicked out of Westlake Junior High because of all that. You know, I went got put in the system. I was in the system for most of my teenage years. Um, did a lot of alternative schooling at a lot of different youth in custody classes um, in the valley. Talk about that a little bit. There's, there's a few of these kind of schools. If you get kicked out of one school, you go to another. Mm-hmm. If you get kicked out of two schools, you end up going to the special. Like I don't know what that's. What yeah. is that like in the nineties yeah. to be you in these schools? Yeah, well, I get suspended Who's, from Westlake. Yeah, and then I have to go enroll at Central. Yeah, you know, the old Central High. Yeah, which is where all the bad kids went. That's where the bad kids go. <laughs> And I got kicked out of there, you know, because they have strict attendance policies. So, and you're just not showing up because you can't get there or because you're, you're, you're stoned at home. You don't give a shit about school. Yeah. All of it. All of it. All of it. Yeah. It just wasn't even part of the normal life routine for me. I mean, do you feel like once, once you stepped outside of that mainstream going to school, you just feel like you abandoned care of it as a kid? I just don't. It's not my, it's not my story. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated with that sense of being a teenager mm-hmm. and not knowing what you don't know and really yeah. not knowing anything. Right. Right. Not only do you not know what you don't know, right. you essentially don't know anything. Right. And it's, I think when you say abandoned care, I mean, I think the care was probably abandoned by the adults in my life that were dealing with mental health and addiction issues. And so really at that point in time, it's, not you're, necessarily you're that I'm survive. You're you're survive. You're trying to I'm survive. I'm in survival mode. Yeah, because yeah. I was a care was abandoned with me. Yes, and so then I had to do what I had to do to be the adult that I thought I had to be in order to get by in right. the world and survive. And school's not part of that equation. Really, that. that's not that's a lower priority. Right, 
and the people that I were hanging out with. So the, the groups or the crowds that you tend to kind of fall into that I fell into have their own hierarchy, right? call it gang life. And so part of that survival strategy is to prove yourself to become one with the gang and then, you know, do what you can do to help sponsor and support all the activity that the gang is, you know, the gang life provides and the support and care that they bring to your life. Right. So then I'm, you know, proving myself I'm still in cars, (laughs) I'm still in stuff from stores, you know, I'm, I'm, jacking purses i'm selling drugs i'm moving and shaking things i'm you know doing all kinds of crazy stuff and school's just completely out of the picture at that point in time you don't seem like this type of person now not now so i'm like i'm i'm sitting here across from you kind of trying not not really trying but you know the mind starts to envision this yeah situation Mm -hmm. and i'm envisioning myself at that point in time because uh, we're not that far in age, right? I was born in 78. Mm. So s- somewhat similar in age. I'm in junior high, high school at the time. My world is not at all like this at right, all. Right. I'm, I'm watching you on the news. Right. Oh, yeah. And I don't, I don't quite know how to wrap my head around that. Right. W- knowing you now. Right. Yeah. Huh. It's a huge change for me. I mean, I've completely changed, you know, uh, my life and the, and the trajectory that I was on. I didn't think I would make it past 18. I thought I'd you be dead or in, in prison. A... Okay. So is it normal teenage development that you cannot see beyond a certain like future? Or is it that your situation was such that you didn't see past your 18th birthday. Well, I think it's part of natural, normal human development, especially as a teen, for the imagination station to start to take place, right? And so mm-hmm. all this neuronal activity and all these, you know, these new neural pathways that are developing inside of the, the brain, I think most te- teenagers are going to think far enough or as far as they can see and imagine something in their future. Yeah, imagine getting married or, right. or having a house. Mm-hmm. Or what that what it looks like to be the X Y Z person right. after high school or after college, right? And my imagination only just took me to death or prison, or you know, a big time drug dealer with you know all the power and a big old crew, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, you would still have the imagination running. Mm-hmm. It would just run in a. Was it really that limited? Yeah. It was. Oh, prison, yeah. death, or a mansion with a crew. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's all i seen. That really is the only... Because the imagination wouldn't go on the street, right? Well, you wouldn't can't go addict. You can't think of an alternative world if you don't come from that alternative world to begin with. Yeah. So the only world I'm living in is death, destruction, drugs, gangs, crime. What happened? How how did it? How did it all change? How did it, yeah, what was the catalyst? Well, I was locked up a lot in my teenage years. From 12 to 18, I was in and out, in and out of, you know, detention, juvenile settings. So I was on my way. To, I was this close, you know, people can't see my fingers right now, but I got like half a millimeter between my thumb and my yeah, index. There's no space there. There's, there's like, no light there. Yeah. 
this close from, uh, you know, youth prison because uh, I was involved in quite yeah. a bit of stuff. I was a fighter. I had lots of road rage. I carried lots of drugs. I carried weapons, all that kind of stuff. So, but my dad got shot and killed um, when I was 15, 14, 15. I probably would have went to prison had I, at that point in time, we went to try to look for the guy that killed him. And had we found him that night, I'm certain that I would have killed him and been in prison, still been sitting in prison. But he had fleed and, you know, went to California and time had passed and I had grown and became more emotionally mature and learned how to later accept and forgive and all that kind of stuff. But through my teenage years and being locked up all the time, I got to about 18 years old, 17, 18 years old. And with being locked up all that time, I actually, you know, was in places where there were people that did mentor me. Now, a lot of them, very few of them were people of color. Um, And so when I ended up in detention centers and I was in like a day treatment program through Valley Behavioral Health called Artec, I was in there for a while. Yeah. And then I got into a program in, in the community. It was a prevention program where they, we would just build homes. They would pay us, teach us all these life skills and, you know, whoop our butts when we got into trouble. Yeah. They really became the parents that we never had. So this group of friends that I, you know, had developed at this later point in time in my teenage years, we were all just roughneck kids with no family support, lack of parental guidance. And it was the people in the community that actually stepped in to raise us. So along the way, I had probably a handful of mentors that just stepped in to my life, guide and direct and try what they could to help me change my life around. Um, And so by the time I was 18, 19, I um, just ended up with some really good mentoring, um, getting involved in the community. I remember walking, uh, knocking on doors with Senator Pete Suazo, uh, other legislators like Dwayne Bordeaux. Um, and, and I just got, and I was angry though, cause I just felt a lot of police brutality. My dad, before he got killed, was beat up really badly by the police for stealing a pack of cigarettes at Smith's. My brother had already gotten locked up and went to prison for carrying a firearm. Um, And I was just angry and I got involved in the community. I just wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make a change. I wanted to make sure that, you know, people could actually have a chance to succeed and, and, and not have to suffer on top of the family problems and kind of the generational and racial kinds of, you know, traditions that tend to carry through because of systemic racism and injustices and oppression, I, I didn't want people to have to also experience extra discrimination and oppression in their own community, in the villages that they were living in. So I was angry and I was knocking, knocking on doors and just trying to get people involved and get support and, you know, ended up on a pathway of education and really linking into the community and really relying on the people that were there to kind of mentor, mentor and support me along the way. When did you decide to get into, like, start to get into clinical practice and realize, it seems like, to me, this is somewhat of a calling for you, or or certainly would feel like that likely when you decided to do it? Right. Well, 
So if I think back to those teenage years and all the programs that I was in, I was always a leader. You know, I always yeah. took charge. I back talk. I smart mouth. The other kids saw that courage and they kind of just followed me in that. And then I, this program that I was in where we built homes, it's called the YouthWorks program through NeighborWorks Salt Lake and on the west side of Salt Lake. I ended up coming back to that program as kind of a peer support, a peer leader. I was getting paid. I was one of the first peer, you know, we have peer support specialists now. Yeah. But back then it was just, you just called it a peer leader and there was no certification. So, um, and I got involved in this program. I got really involved in the community. I kind of, uh, went through the ranks and I became like a site supervisor was wearing my own tool belt, you know, carrying my own nail gun, teaching other kids like me how to build homes. And then I became kind of the coordinator of the program doing, you know, a desk job and paperwork. And then I ended up becoming director of the program and I was writing, you know, multi-million dollar grants over the course of like five years. So did a lot of grant work, grant writing, did lots of projects in the community. When you were, this is when you were a teenager, you were involved in that program mm -hmm. and working and building houses and working your way up. Did they, did that come with a lot of education, formal education, or was it on the job? And the they job. were, they were like, here's a grant. I need you to learn how to write, learn how to write one just like this. On the job. Um, the opportunity presented itself. I stepped in. A lot of it was just the social skills training from all of the programs I had been in and the people that had mentored me. But the opportunity came to write the grants. And one, one thing, one talent that I always had, even in junior high and high school, as I was attempting to get an education and is writing. I've always had really great technical writing skills. Sometimes I write too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it would just kind of presented itself. And I spent, you know, about a week when the opportunity came to get this grant in because it was due in a week. And the old director in that position had left. Um, so really it was me as the coordinator to kind of step in and see what I could do. Did a week, you know, stayed up really late most nights and was just typing away, doing research, getting the information, collecting the data, running the budget so that I could submit this grant to, you know, Salt Lake County and uh, have the county pay for more, you know, services for youth in the community. Wow. Did you parlay that into college? So after that, people kept telling me, you need to get your master's degree. Because I had, I actually had gotten my bachelor's degree in that time. So I, so by the time I was 18 and going through all the programs and getting out of the system, I was able to get a GED in the alternative setting, which gave me f my last five credits for a high school diploma. So my high school diploma allowed me to get into Salt Lake Community College, and I used FAFSA and government funding because of my family's income sure. to get me through college. And during this time as I was transitioning my life and my lifestyle and getting involved in the community, I actually ended up getting a really good opportunity to meet the president of the University of Utah, Bernie Matchin through a really great mentor of mine. Her name was Irene Fisher, and she was doing a lot of work on the West Side community and developed what's now called University Neighborhood Partners yeah. on the West Side of Salt Lake. So she took me to his office. We were in his office, and he asked me if I wanted a full-ride scholarship. He would just give it to me. 
because of where I had come from and what I had been through and all the work that I was doing in the community and my leadership ability, yeah. right? So he said, I will give you a scholarship. What do you want to do? Do you want to come up? And I said, give me a week to think about it. I don't want to say yes right now. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wanted to be a cop. And I did a little bit of training in the, in the police corps, the academy, and realized really quickly that it was so much of an us versus them mentality. And because of where I had come from, I couldn't live with myself. Yeah hitting the streets and arresting people that looked like me that came from families that I came from and, you know, putting people deeper into the system. I wanted to help in a different kind of way. So I got the scholarship, got my bachelor's degree, um, became the director of that program, youth program. And then people kept telling me, you need to get your master's degree. You need to get your master's degree. And so uh, I applied for some scholarships, sold everything that I had, really went nearly homeless and broke to get my master's degree and then finally got my master's degree uh, 2009 2010 didn't know a thing about diagnoses didn't know a thing about dsm didn't know a thing about mental health disorders i just knew that i wanted to help people mm -hmm. and i thought social work was the way in and i submitted the application and got accepted to the program do you still feel that way that social work is the way to help people I think there's a lot of different ways to help people. What I used to tell people is because in the early days, social work didn't make enough money. I was making like maybe 35000 a year. Yeah. And I uh, would Everybody I know who went into social work said the same thing. It was just hard. I mean, I've got an uncle who, uh, who went into social work um, and ended up back in construction, owning a construction company because there's just, there's, you just made a better living right? at it. So I would tell people, because I used to chair the Chicano Scholarship Fund, so we would give you know thousands of dollars in scholarships a year up at the U of U, and I would tell these social work students, turn back. Turn back, <laughs> hurry. <laughs> hurry. Become an architect or a doctor and donate Accountant, to charity. Anything yeah. else, anything else. But... But what's but that has somewhat changed, and we we we'll talk a lot about this. I think, mm -hmm. you know, in maybe a whole future discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but but it is different now from an income standpoint. That's oh, yeah. that's for sure. And really, because of COVID, um, there was a lot of changes with. Well, before with COVID that, uh, oh, in the ACA with the parity law, yeah, with commercial insurance having to cover mental health and addiction. So that way it wasn't, you know, being a social worker and especially doing clinical services and providing therapy what wasn't just something you did with Medicaid or the nonprofit or government sector. You could jump into the private sector and really work with commercial insurance. And so I learned that you could, for me, the more people I helped, the more money I could make. And the more money I make, the more people I can help. And that's been yes. my philosophy. It's a, I'm glad you've come to that because it's a, it is true. And it's, it's, I don't know that it's, I think it's universally true. And I think when you focus on helping people, you, you definitely have more opportunity to make money. And you're right. Money is fuel and, and businesses need fuel, which means you can help more people. Thanks, everybody, for listening to part one of a two-part episode and discussion with Clifton Uckerman. Stay tuned for next week when we finish up our conversation. 
uh, of essentially phase one of what Cliff is up to and his background and story. Really uh, an inspiring story for us to to pay attention to those around us and how drug policy is affecting our youth and how it affected Cliff. And, you know, we, we really need to reach out to people and lend a hand. And uh, looking forward to episode two next week. Stay subscribed to Utah in the Weeds. Stay safe out there.